On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the Commonwealth Games bid. City Council in Hamilton gave it a nudge today, said we're going to keep moving this ball down the road. What does that mean? And more importantly to a lot of people, money. Are we talking money yet? What's this going to cost? Well, we'll figure that out. We're also going to be chatting with two people who I want to give an applause to, and that's why we're going to be talking to them, because they are doing something remarkable. Two McMaster students who came up with a brilliant idea, have executed this brilliant idea, and are now helping an awful lot of people by doing this. Wanted to do this so other people could hear this and see what you can do when you come up with such an idea and you do it. Great for them. We'll be talking to them. And we're going to be chatting about Kawhi Leonard, sort of. Folks in the States, media people in the States, have suddenly discovered this thing called load management. And guess what? They're freaking out. What do you mean somebody sits out some games on national television? Well, we saw it for a year, but apparently down south they had no awareness of this. Well, they do now, and they don't like it. Talking all about that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. In front of Hamilton City Council today, the group that is making its push making the bid to bring the Commonwealth Games here, the 100th anniversary Commonwealth Games in 2030. Again, of course, everybody knows that Hamilton hosted the British Empire Games in 1930, so this would be the centenary of those games. Uh, They were in front of council today, and uh, my understanding, and I'm going to bring in someone who can explain this better, my understanding is got the thumbs up to begin the process and put a bid forward. forward. Jasper Kajavski is on that Hamilton or Commonwealth 100 committee. Uh, Jasper, thanks for doing this today. Thanks a lot, Scott. Nice to be chatting with you. So you did get some good news from city council today. Yeah, we had a really good day. there was a great presentation with uh, our, the pres- our president, P.J. Mercante, and uh, Lou Fraporti uh, from uh, the firm of Gallings, which is just doing a great job partnering in on the whole social impact and the value propositions and partnerships for the bid. Our lead architect, Gary Zabrowski, and then I joined in with our bid manager, Greg Maychak, and Cecilia Carter-Smith uh, answering questions and a very robust conversation. And ultimately, when they had their... A debate and discussion afterwards, the council unanimously voted to allow us the permission to submit the part one of a two-part proposal to Commonwealth Games Canada by their November 22nd deadline, and we just keep moving along in the process. So what does that mean, Jasper? There's two parts. What is part one? What does that mean for the city right now? Part one is the is the hosting proposal, and then the Commonwealth Games Canada uh, group will review those proposals and in December, we expect in mid-December, will tell us whether we are invited to participate in part two, and that would have a deadline in March. And we're very confident that we will be invited into part two, and that gets into even more detail about the plans, the venues, the, the entire hosting proposal. And then after part two, Commonwealth, Commonwealth Games Canada will sometime at the end of March announce uh, what Canadian city will be selected to be our representative to the international phase. So this is the domestic phase. It has two parts, and the winner of the domestic phase is then selected to participate in the international phase. And that would happen post-April. That said, I find it incredibly difficult to believe that if Hamilton does come forward with a reasonable bid, with a, you know, a credible bid, 
that Commonwealth Canada is going to look at this on the 100th anniversary, the first, you know, the anniversary of the first games and say, yeah, Hamilton, no, we're going to take a pass. I mean, we're, we're as close to a shoe-in if we put together a credible bid as there ever has been, right? Well, I, you know, I'm always careful about language that in any way could be, you know, seen to be presumptuous or uh, ahead of the, the game on the part of those who make the decisions. But that having been said, I concur with, with you in the sense that this is such a compelling, irresistible story that on the 100th anniversary of the Commonwealth Games, which started in Hamilton in 1930 on the grounds of what became Civic Stadium and then Iverwin Stadium, that the opening ceremonies would take place at Tim Hortons Field on exactly the same location in the heart of the most populated part of the country, the Golden Horseshoe, um, with the Games not having been in Canada since 1994, when Victoria hosted them. So when you talk about a perfect storm and putting together a perfect script, like I said, if if someone had told you you could script this in this kind of a way, you'd probably think that it wasn't even possible, and yet we're actually in the process of writing it. So my sense is exactly what you just said, and that is if we continue along the path that we are on, I certainly feel very, very confident, and I think our committee and, in fact, now the whole community is starting to understand that this is going to be a great city-building opportunity and community engagement opportunity uh, for this entire uh, city. So, uh, and I say this, I hope you'll understand the way I'm saying this, but council has to be somewhat careful because as they give the go-ahead for this, this is not a pie-in-the-sky, long-shot thing. If they are pushing this along... They are pushing it along knowing there is a good chance this could come or that, or we could be in the real mix for this to come. That's absolutely true. But, on the, but the other side of that exact point is the fact that the city understands, and in fact it has been very deliberately written into the memorandum of understanding which we negotiated with the municipality, given that this is essentially a community-led bid by the new federally incorporated not-for-profit Hamilton 100 that that is contracting with the city to do this, that the city has a number of off-ramps, and they know that at every stage along the way, until such time that there's a formal commitment that they have to make, they can pull back their permission from us at any time and for any reason they deem appropriate. And that wording is very deliberately put into the agreement so that the city doesn't find itself in a position where it's stuck with a commitment it did not want to or was not yet ready to make. Let us take a very quick break here. I'm going to come back and talk about that part of it, because money is always going to be a part of this, and it's always going to be an important part. And Jasper, what I've heard a lot of in this, and I, and I don't think it's unintentional, I think it's very intentional, is about the city building. You mentioned it. This is the, the pitch today. Much of the stuff that's been talked about is about the city building opportunities, and I think that's terrific. I have one question, and it's, it may sound sarcastic. It's really not intended to be this. Um, do those people who are behind this and who want to get the games here want them because of the sports and the competition, or is it mostly because of the opportunities that a games can present as far as federal and provincial funding for infrastructure? Oh, it's clearly primarily because of the social impact, the community building, the engagement, and the legacy. And the fact that that happens under the umbrella of a sports festival is a great thing because sports is, a, is an incredibly important part of our lives and recreation, physical activity, wellness, and health. But the idea that this amount of time and work and expense and energy 
when there are so many other important challenges that municipalities are facing, especially in these, these, these difficult times. When you look at poverty reduction, when you look at affordable housing, when you look at the opioid crisis, when you look at the, the mental health issues, when you look at uh, crime and, and issues of discrimination and hate, the idea that this amount of time would be spent solely to put on a 12-day sports event 10 years from now on its own would not happen. That wouldn't make sense. It's the fact that those 12 days of sports is the umbrella under which all of these other community-building legacy and social impact questions can be addressed is what makes this compelling and why you do it. Because I've heard a number of people say, and I bet you've heard this same thing too, is I, I don't know if I'm really all that excited about the Commonwealth Games per se as a level. I mean, if it was the Olympics, yeah, I'd be excited about the Olympics. I've heard a lot of people say, I'm not sure about the Commonwealth Games. It sounds like that would be secondary. As long as we can get all these things that would help grow the city, then we'll figure the rest out later. Well, yes. I mean, the issue of the scale of the games uh, is, is certainly one thing that has to be considered. And in fact, it's the scale of these games, let's say, as opposed to the Olympics, which are a great event, but much more challenging, larger, and, and, and outside the scope of, the, of what I would suggest is the appropriate scale for Hamilton. Uh, these games are almost perfectly sized to give you the bang for the buck and the, the exposure and the branding that comes with a world-class event. Because it's not as big as the Olympics, but this is a world-class event. But because of the scale of it, it can be done in a completely financially sustainable and economically feasible way and give you all those other legacy and social impact um, you know, uh, advantages that are what make it worthwhile to do in the first instance. And we'll have lots of time over the next number of weeks and months to talk about those particular infrastructure things. Some have been talked about already and some of the other ones, and we'll get into those for sure down the road. One of the, I think it's a fair comment, and again, you can correct me if it's not, but I think one of the fair things that is a hesitation, again, from some people, including councillors, is there is going to be cost to this. There, it's inevitable there's going to be some kind of cost, and that has not been talked about yet. How much sense do you get from council that there is a hesitation around getting into it without really knowing at this point what the money will be? Well, they're not. it's not so much a hesitation about getting into something before you know the cost. It's more an appropriate you know, concern and an appropriate expression of the important nature of under, before any formal commitment is made, knowing exactly what the numbers are going to be. So it's a process of learning more and getting more information before you sign on any dotted line with something that can't be pulled back. And as I said earlier, there will be nothing in front of council that they're surprised by. And as we move through this and they see the economic feasibility of it, you see the level of investment that is coming in from senior levels of government that otherwise you would never have access to for things that the community wants in the first instance. And the fact that all of the facilities and other uh, parts of the, of the games program are being designed so that it's not solely for those 12 days, but it's for their long-term impact on the community that I think people are going to feel very comfortable when they see how this whole thing and the financial model and the business plan for it, there's going to be a, a good deal of confidence that this is going to be a great investment uh, for the city of Hamilton. Just before I let you go, and again, we're going to have you back again to talk about this because it's an important thing because there is going to be money spent on this, and it's an important thing. I, I don't think you're going to give me a number in your head, but I bet you that in your head you have 
contemplated, okay, you know, the city is going to have to spend some dollar figure on this. Has it bounced around in your brain about where you think the outer limit of that number could be when this all comes back and we start contemplating all the numbers that you think might be a reasonable number? There has to be some top level that you think is that you could go to the city with and still make them interested. The number from the perspective of the city is going to represent something in the range of a total of a percentage of uh, somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 percent out of with 80 percent of it coming from senior levels of government. But the important thing to remember is, one, that all of the game's revenues stay with the host community and any cost overruns will likely be taken care of by an insurance policy, which is already budgeted for at the front end. So the, the, the economic model for this is very, very sustainable from the perspective of the host community, and that's going to become very apparent as, as numbers start to be inserted into the plan and people see that in the coming months. Jasper Kajafsky from the Commonwealth Com- Bid Committee. Uh, as I say, we will have you back. We will talk more about this, but I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Right, thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I am not here to shame anyone, not today anyway, maybe tomorrow, who knows. It'll come again, but I'm not doing that tonight. But I want you to listen to some numbers for a second. Because back in 2017, the National Zero Waste Council, it looked into food waste in Canada, and it's amazing what that group found. 53% of food that Canadians throw away, it said, could be eaten. Canadians throw away 2.2 million tons, 2.2 million tons of edible food every year. Think about that one for a second. It's a stunning, stunning number. And here's why I'm bringing that up this evening. Because two McMaster students are doing something about this. It may be on a small scale compared to those numbers. I mean, that's just, again, a stunning number, but it's something, and it's terrific what they're doing. Uh, They are taking food that would have been thrown away and cooking for women living at the YMCA downtown. It is a it is a great idea. It's something that I don't know why more people have not thought to do before now, but, you know, it's got to start somewhere. Uh, Hardil Bhatt and Heidi Yin are the two people behind this. They join me now. Guys, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, it's our pleasure to be here. Uh, Hardil, let's start with you for just a second, and we'll go to Heidi in a second, but you guys are our Mac students. What are you taking? So I'm in third year biochemistry. Of course you are, because that would make sense that you would then be a chef. <laughs> no, it's, I think mostly it's Heidi, but I'm uh, learning a lot from her. And I do have a passion for cooking, so we get along uh, perfectly. And Heidi, what are you in? I'm in Honors Life Sciences. And again, not exactly a, a, a obvious connection there. So where, Heidi, where did this idea come from? Yeah, so um, essentially I knew Chris Beltrano from before, and he was the former chef and manager at the YWCA Kitchen. Um, And he was really receptive to the idea of opening up the kitchen to the community. They do a lot of different events involving um, people from different businesses wanting to come in and cook a meal for the residents. So he was really open to sharing the kitchen for an ongoing project. And it really aligned with the YWCA's mission um, to serve the community and promote healthy lifestyles. But how did you come? Because you're not a professional chef, right? No. Okay, yeah, so it's a bunch of home cooks. Okay, but the, but so where did the uh, so you've got this idea that you can go to the YWCA, but the the putting all the pieces together, like where did it all come? How did it? Where was the inspiration from to do this? 
Yeah, so um, Chris also mentioned that, you know, the, the Hamilton Farmer's Market, the farmers are always very willing to donate their food. And um, it's it seems like it was kind of um, common knowledge that there's a lot of food that goes to waste um, from Saturday to Tuesday, um, you know, from the farmer's market selling a lot of um, reduced cost um, produce that's gone like wilted or um, just a little bit um, less than fresh. Uh, so then we bring it all back to the kitchen and we started recruiting some volunteers. So me and Hardil were the, you know, it, from the very beginning, it was it would just be the two of us. Uh, we would we would collect all the food and, you know, it, was, it would start with like, you know, two to four volunteers and now it's like um, 10 to 15 people and and it's really kind of transitioned to this you know really friendly environment um, and just a bunch of people who want to share a meal together have some fun and then also give back to the community at the same time. So Hardil, Heidi says that it's pretty common knowledge that on Saturday until Tuesday there's this discounted food at the market that is going to be sold off. I, I I don't know that all the everybody knows that. Maybe they do now. Uh, how did you guys find out about that, and how did you then think, okay, you know what, we can actually do something for the community with that food? Where did that idea come from? So um, that's a great question, actually. Like, not even I didn't know, uh, like before. Um, so there was this another organization called Food Now Bombs, and I kind of read about them how they used to collect food from wherever they can and used to cook for people in the community. And so that's how the idea actually came uh, into place. And uh, so Heidi, you know, we used to volunteer together at Pathways to Education in Hamilton, and that's how we knew each other. So Heidi has this, had this idea, and she wanted to share it with me. And then I was uh, on board right away, and then that's how we got started. And the, we figured out the logistics, and it all worked out. Well, let's talk about those logistics, because at some point, somebody has to go to the farmers or the people who are selling at the market and say, hey, uh, we want your food. We don't want to actually pay for it. We want it when it's just about to turn, when you're about to throw it out, and we want it for free. Who was the one who had to go and do that? So actually, um, well, it was, Yeah, go ahead, Hardil. Yeah, so it's, it was actually both of us. Uh, we just thought, uh, you know, the farmer's market uh, vendors would essentially be generous enough to uh, share the food that was going to go in waste anyway and that that was the case when we went there they were very receptive to our idea and then right away no one really argued or anything they just agreed to it and uh, I think that's the beauty of it because they it's it's profitable for them to sell the goods that they are selling but at the uh, at the core they also know that they are you know um, there's a lot of wastage and they also don't want it to um, you know just let it go in trash, rather just help some uh, community members by feeding them. So this was essentially a great idea for them as well. Heidi, when you did go and ask them, were you at all surprised that they were all willing to do this? Because it sounds like a whole lot of them are willing to do this. Was there any surprise that they were that enthusiastic? Yeah, um, we were both really surprised. And we were also surprised that um, if we wanted to make certain things and we we wanted to include something and we, we could just, because eventually we uh, establish kind of a relationship with all the vendors that we come back to and we just ask like oh do you have any mushrooms by any chance that are going bad and you know they would bring out a whole boatload of mushrooms and always happy to donate and you know they said that even if we weren't going to be able to use everything that we got you know it's at least taking it off their hands because they knew it was going to go to the compost anyways. 
You know, one of the funny things you say, and we got to go to a break in just a second, but you, you said that, you know, do you have any mushrooms that were going to go bad? What about the idea? Like, what is the state of the food that you're getting here? Is it looking horrendous or is it looking like normal, but it's just not maybe grocery store quality? Or where would it be? Um, it's definitely very edible sometimes. Um, it's a little bit too far gone and we have to throw... Um, some of the things that we have to sort through potatoes, for instance, if they're too green or peppers, we have to cut off, you know, the, the sides that are a bit mushy. But a lot of it um, is really great produce. Uh, most of it, you wouldn't even be able to know the difference. And the great thing about the farmer's market is that their vegetables and their produce are so fresh. And, you know, we always get these really cool vegetables that are like, you know, these heirloom zucchinis. And, you know, sometimes we find things that we don't even know what the vegetables are. Like the other day, we had <laughs> like Japanese turnip. And, you know, that was the first time we even knew of such a vegetable. This is not food that is sort of barely able to be hung on that pigs would have a hard time eating. Like this is, it's fine, except for a few little things here and there. For sure. Um, oftentimes we find that tomatoes are even sweeter and um, the meals are able to be so good because we use um, mainly produce, so it ends up being a very nutritious and healthy meal while still being flavorful. Hardell, here's the the question about this I think some people are going to have. If they go to the grocery store and there's anything wrong with the food, it is taken away or thrown out because people, not only are people, I think, expecting that their produce, their food is going to look perfect, but we have very, very strict food safety laws in this country. So... I'm not suggesting for a second you're feeding people unsafe food, but it, it paints a picture that we're maybe some of our food laws are just way too strict that we could do more with some of this food. No, definitely. I agree with that at all. Uh, because uh, I feel like when you go to a grocery store, there's also this self-bias. Like when you go there, you would try to pick out the best veggies possible of course. and leave, leave out the rest, which which is human psychology. Why wouldn't you just get the best product out there? Um so that, that is the reason why uh, grocery stores out there try to keep all the, you know, whatever uh, veggies they have at the same consistency and not have any, uh, you know, uh, products that are a little bit older. But I think there's also a way that you can try to mitigate that by setting up different programs, such as uh, if the veggies are looking a little bit deformed or uh, they are they do get a little bit older, then they, the grocery stores can sell it for a little bit cheaper, mm. and that would just save so much, um, you know, vegetables, fruits, and everything that, uh, you know, uh, our farmers grow. Or donate uh, it to a food bank. I, I don't understand if they're going to throw it out. If it's just going to go into a garbage bin behind the store, why not donate it? That's what I don't get. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with that as well. Like, programs like these can be set up literally anywhere, uh across Canada as long as there's uh, someone available to provide a kitchen and um, I feel like students have this great energy when they're in university they want to experience new stuff Uh, they want to give their hours to uh, not just study in their classrooms but actually be out there in the community and uh, you know do some work that's tangible and actually impact the people around them so like having these uh, you know um, programs across Canada affiliated with different universities, I, I think it, it can go on a big scale and actually make meals with purpose like everywhere in, in Canada. 
Heidi, you both said that you're not chefs by training. So when you get these vegetables and you talked about you got a Japanese, was it a Japanese turnip you said the other day that was a, like a brand new vegetable? How, where do you get the ideas for what to cook for these women at the YWCA then? Because it's almost, it's almost starting to sound a little bit like one of those you know, reality cooking competition shows. Yeah, um, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, well, for uh, we we just wanted to say that um, what we're doing is really nothing special. Um, you know, the key ingredient for, to all of our meals is olive oil. <laughs> um, <laughs> we do so many roasted vegetables. Um, we do shepherd's pie. You know, really, you can, you can really toss any kind of root vegetable and add herbs, and you know the farmers market also gives us all their herbs that are going bad, like rosemary, thyme, sage, and you just stick it in the oven, and it's a great meal. It's healthy, you know, mashed potatoes, garden salad, and and surprisingly, the residents and and the volunteers too, we love eating, you know, really fresh items like beets. You know, we get we got so many beets this past weekend, and everyone loved them. And as long as you have the time and you want to put in like the elbow grease. It's great, and just to add on to what you were mentioning earlier, what we brought to the uh, farmer's market when we were mentioning this is that Ontario um, actually has a Donor Protection Act, so anything that um, vendors or companies give away, like food-wise, um, they're not held liable for any kind of um, uh, food poisoning or good anything like yeah, that, that would know. happen. Yeah, so that's, that would be none of their concern because they're purely donating it. It is uh, it is a fantastic thing you guys are doing. I would encourage people again to go look at the uh, the story online. I don't know if there's a way if people are interested in donating to you guys or not for something or if you need donations. But again, go online. You can uh, you can find out about this. It's Hardil Bot. It's Heidi Yin Meals with a Purpose. And just as I do wrap up, I only have ten seconds. Is there a way to donate or do you need donations? Yes, if you want to donate anything, you can just bring it to the YWCA, let them know it's for Meals with Purpose. And if you're willing to volunteer, just go to the YWCA website and click on the volunteer with us. Hardeal Bot, Heidi, and great job, you too. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank it's, you. It was a pleasure uh, to be here. Let us take a quick break. Let's see. We need more people like that doing stuff like that. Very practical, very helpful, very sacrificial. It's a and very creative. It's a great combination. Thanks for doing that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy who is not the British Prime Minister. But, you know, he could pass. He could be the British Prime Minister someday. I mean, he's just got to get British British citizenship. But he's certainly smart enough to pass these entry exams and to be a Prime Minister. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Future politician, future Prime Minister of Brexit, England. How are you? At some point, I, I will be the mayor of Burlington or Oakville. It, it could work. It could work. If you talk with a British accent, it will make everyone sound much more intelligent and erudite. And um, did, did you hear, did you, I don't know if you could hear the questions I was asking. This was the questions for the, to get into university in England in 1895. So you're a high school student and you have to take this test to get in. Question number one, give your estimate of the foreign policy of Henry VIII before 1520. What? <laughs> the people who are graduating from history in university today couldn't answer that question. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. The, the standards are real high. <laughs> they are. Uh, here's another one. Discuss the good and bad features of the government of England under the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. Oh, my goodness. That, that, that could open up a whole can of worms that they don't want to hear. Oh, uh, how did the Elder Pitt differ in political opinions from Newcastle or Rockingham and their followers? Are we going to talk sports? 
I think we have to because neither of us have a chance at this. I mean, when I said at the beginning, I'm going to make people feel stupid, uh, th- I-, I don't know that we feel stupid. I-, I-, I We all feel the same way. It's like, huh? So you want to talk about the, the English Premier League? Like we could do that. We could talk about England's... Uh, no, i tell you know. what I want to talk about. i tell you what I want to talk about. It's something that you retweeted today, and I find this fascinating. <laughs> so last year, Kawhi Leonard is up here with the Raptors, wins the championship. Everyone's following Kawhi Leonard, and we all understand, we all got it, that he was taking these load management days, and he probably missed 20-25% of the regular season. He sat out nothing in the States. No, not a word, basically, in the States about this. Well, Kawhi Leonard goes down and joins the Clippers now, one of the best teams in the league, who are supposed to have, I don't know, 15 games this year or more on national television. And guess what? The first nationally televised game the Clippers have is a game that aligns with Kawhi Leonard's load management day. So he's sitting on the bench, and ESPN loses their mind. What is going on? How can you not play in a nationally televised game? And I'm thinking, Bubba, where have you been? <laughs> well, of course, because it had nothing to do with them. It didn't affect them. And whatever national broadcast that the Raptors had, and the Raptors had a good amount of uh, um, games that were broadcast nationally in the United States on TNT and on ESPN, but they were weekday games, and, and they weren't feature matchups against like this one is the Clippers versus you know Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks. So this is a big, big game, which many people believe will be a finals preview. So they're losing a gasket. Now, I'll say this. I mean, Kawhi played, he missed 22 games last year. So he played 60 games last year. But that was coming off um, an injury. You know, the, the, the thigh injury, the knee injury. He had a slight back issue. And he hadn't played it in, in, almost, in over a year. So to guide him in, to get him all ramped up for what the Raptors believed at the time was going to be a long playoff run and it ended up being a championship made a lot of sense. I have to admit, Scott, that, you know, I'm a little surprised at this here for um, that the Clippers are going to do this here. And, again, based on that, that fact, too, that, you know, it's a big matchup that, you know, you, you would think you would want to win. And it's in Los Angeles. So, you know, you have season ticket holders and all that kind of stuff and a lot of people paying to see the likes of a Kawhi Leonard feature. You know, this is, if, if there's one thing about the NBA, it's a star-driven league. Of course. And you go to see. I mean, I don't think, you know, when when the Leafs are playing, you know, the L.A. Kings, you're not saying, ooh, uh, Kovalchuk versus Matthews. <laughs> it just doesn't rub off that way. But you do in the NBA when you're saying, ooh, Giannis versus Kawhi, right? So many so, things you've said that I want to dive into here because you've hit on a whole bunch of things on this one. But let's start with this first point. Load management, yes, you're right. Had an injury last year, so you want to ease him back in and you don't want to overdo it and all the rest. They didn't, they didn't play last night and they didn't play Monday night. They didn't play since Sunday. And they play again tomorrow night, but they play a crappy team tomorrow. So you're playing a really good team today, and you're playing a crappy team tomorrow, and today is a nationally televised game and tomorrow isn't. Leaving aside whether you think load management is good or bad, why would you not play this game and then sit the next one? You know, it, you know and it's funny that you bring that up because it almost, and I, and I hate to bring up the hockey parallel, but I, I feel like I have to in some ways here. It's almost like the Mike Babcock parallel of playing his best starting goaltender, and that being Frederick Anderson, when you're talking about back-to-back games, he generally plays him on the so- he plays the starting goaltender 
on the game that you're expected to get the two points and sends the backup goaltender out to the Wolves. And their belief is, and his belief, and he got this from Scotty Bowman, so this has been going on for many years, that you always grab the points that you know you can get. And perhaps that's the way that some of these coaches in the NBA are thinking, is that you're not quite sure that you're, you know, you're going to have a... Because Kawhi, let's be honest, if he plays the Milwaukee Bucks, it, it should be a heavy minutes game. But if you're playing the Phoenix Suns the next night... Portland Trail, yeah, Portland Trail Blazers the next Or the night. Portland Trail Blazers, who just aren't what they used to be, even if it's on the road, that, you know what, you're looking long-term because you don't want to, quote, burn out your talent before you get to what they call the meaning, the more meaningful season and that being the second season with the playoffs. But it's e- an interesting philosophy, but it's being used by coaches in many sports. But even if it's a heavy minutes game against the Clippers, against the Bucks, pardon me, if you're not going to play the next night and you're being paid, whatever it is, $35 million a year, are you incapable of playing one heavy minutes game a week and then sitting? I mean, it, Bob, it, this is the thing. It's I get the concept, I suppose, of the load management to some degree. This this seems to me to be not only overdoing the load management thing, but almost, I don't even know, I, 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 don't, I don't know that he's making the choice. I don't know that Kawhi Leonard is making the choice or the team is, but it, it, it seems like you're dogging it, you're dodging it. I don't even know what the right word is. Something is wrong with what they're doing here. Yeah, and, and you're right, because, I mean, what we talked about earlier, there are people that, you know, hey, let's, let's be serious. If you're at the L.A. Forum tonight for this game, and, you know, I don't know if there's a ticket that's under 75 bucks, and I'm talking the bleeds, right? Yep, yep. If, you're, if you're talking about a significant ticket in the L.A. Forum tonight for tonight's game against the Milwaukee Bucks, you're talking significant money. Not that people can't afford it in Los Angeles. No, but not, but, all, are, not all people there are rich. There are obviously rich people. Great but, point. Great. No, you're, you're, you're totally right. We and saw this in Toronto. We saw this in Toronto. Well, people I, could afford one game a year, and they yep. go, and he sits. Well, and I think what you're looking at, Scott, is there are many people when the NBA schedule came out in the spring – uh, sorry, in the summertime, and they're saying, what games I, would I want to go to? That's a game that sticks out like a sore thumb. I want to see Giannis versus our star player. Like, I mean, this is, this is a matchup that I want to be at, that I will pay the big money for. And you have to be let, let down somewhat by the fact that he's not playing. This goes all the way back to Greg Popovich, you know, one of the most successful coaches in NBA history in terms of championships and wins and losses. And he would, in this time, you know, probably about a decade ago when he had the likes of, you know, Parker and Duncan and Ginobili, he would take, that was his big three, and he would generally take one of the three, on, which could be on three back-to-back nights, and sit one of them. Now, by the end of the season, he would have ended up sitting each one of those players for about 10 games a season. If the L.A. Clippers are going at the pace they're going at right now, it'll be, Kawhi will sit the same amount of games as he sat last year, which, again, is 22 games. You have to wonder, as a season ticket holder, where the value is there. Well, let me throw something else at you, which is stunning to me, and I, I, I'm just realizing this now. So, again, uh, we know that athletes, first of all, they have a compressed schedule. So, okay, so you talked about the backup goalies. You're not going to play back-to-back days. Kawhi Leonard, I don't think, is ever going to play a back-to-back nights, but I don't think they have too many. Then you say, okay, we got to travel, and, you know, the air pressure and stuff, I mean, you can, guys talk about swelling on planes, and it can hurt your body. Here's 
the next, so they've got, they played in Los Angeles. They played at home on Sunday. They play tonight in Los Angeles, tomorrow in Los Angeles, Monday in Los Angeles, Wednesday and Thursday of next week on the road. Then the November 16, 18, 20, 22, 24, all in Los Angeles. They're not traveling at all. They're not traveling. Wow. So this is like, I don't even know. This is the greatest home stretch in the history of basketball. <laughs> I don't know how they pulled this one off. And guess who, by the way? So he's going to play. T- he's not playing today. He's going to play tomorrow. Guess who they play their next game, which might fall into the category of a game you don't play if you're Kawhi Leonard. You're going to sit him against the Lakers? The Raptors. Oh, the Raptors. Wow. You, uh, could you? Am- game. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine the disappointment? But how could. Okay, so. I, here's my prediction right up front. I have not even looked far enough down the schedule. I'm going to do it as we're talking. I haven't even looked far enough down the schedule to see when the Clippers come to Toronto because that game's in it's Los the 22nd Angeles. 22nd of December. All right, hold on a second. Uh, December 11th. 11, 11th, okay. Uh, and they play Monday and they play Friday, and that's a Wednesday night. I will bet you money right now that Kawhi Leonard does not play that Wednesday game, that he that will come to too. Toronto and not play. I'll bet you money. That would be awful because, you know, there's going to be a ceremony for him. He's going to get the presentation of his ring, and if they deny him or at least deny the fans him not playing that night, it will be an uproar. This will be something that will be continually talked about. If you're right, if this is talked about, or sorry, if this if that happens, this will be talked about for a very long time. And, and you know, we the thing that I retweeted was one of the most respected, as we talked about earlier, right off the top, the complaints came from one of the most respected basketball commentators there is, and that's Doris Burke, who is basically saying the NBA's got a problem. Um, and I don't think she said that on the basis of the network that she represents. I think she's looking at the big picture. I don't think she's, you know, that phase that she feel like feel like feel like she's a, you know, she's a stiff for the network kind of thing. And and you know, Scott, this could be a problem. Um, like I said, this is a star. Of course, it's a problem. Of course it's a problem because you've got, and you mentioned it a moment ago, Bubba, you have got people, you've got expensive tickets, and yeah, there's the rich people, there's the Drakes, and there's the, the what's his name, super fan, Navbadia, who you know buy their tickets and are there all the time, but there's a lot of people who get tickets because they scrounge and they find one pair maybe once a year to go, right. and your guy doesn't play. And I'm looking at this going, you know what, the, if nothing else, the league is soon going to have to put something in place that says... If a guy is not injured and he's a star and you buy tickets, you have to give some sort of refund or free beer or something to fans that game because the fans eventually are going to get fed up with this. They are. You're you're right, but you know, and this, and I, I'm so being so honest here, Scott, when when I say this because I've thought long and hard about this all day. You know, since since you know Doris Burke let out her her words, what can the NBA do? You know, if, you know what? If it's, I'm surprised this hasn't happened in hockey or in other sports, and it maybe and maybe it will, because I just don't know what the league can mandate. That the league can mandate players to play. Like, so, so you put out you put in some sort of policy that says if you're if you, in. And, well, baseball has the policy of a dis- disabled list. You've got to play. Well, you don't have to play in baseball, but you play unless you're. You dress unless you're on the disabled list, and you, uh, at least you're on the bench. At least you're doing. I don't. Know, I don't know what you do. If you miss a game in the NBA, if you sit out, you got to sit out three games. 
like like a player in football who goes down with an injury. You never legislate that with the well. players union. And, and I, I, again, Scott, I understand what you're saying, but this is these leagues. And like I said, I think this is going to happen in other leagues. I could see this. I mean, baseball rest is built in, especially for the stars, and that for the most part are. Um, the, the pitcher, the starting pitchers, and for the most part, your relievers get day uh, days off. There are uh, maintenance days for your starting players in baseball all the time, so that's never an issue. Um, in hockey, I could see this happening. Well, really it happens could. with your goalies already. You, but wh- okay, so why does LeBron James not need a, a, a load management days? He, he has taken maintenance days. Not many. I mean. Not, not not like no, this. No, not many. Not many. Not like no, this. No. Why? Why do none of the other stars of the NBA, or very few of them, need now? And again, you're right. Kawhi Leonard had injuries two years ago, and he's mm-hmm. been banged up at times. But this is a this is absolutely a preventative thing. Why do other superstars? Why does you mentioned Giannis Antetokounmpo? Why does he not need load management days? Again, Scott, I think when you do look, these guys do, because I can think of uh, Giannis sitting on the bench on, on a number of occasions. But generally, he's, when he takes these load management days, he just, I mean, he's in a suit and he is with the team and but just doesn't play. Uh, I, this isn't just Kawhi. I mean, Kawhi's the biggest example of it because right now he's a big star. It's the Clippers. The Clippers are the big deal. So, of course, this is a, this is a big, big thing. He's a champion, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but... I'm telling you, I mean, I watch enough of this league to see that it happens with players. Maybe not 22 games. In fact, no one's sitting out 22 games like he did last year. But all these top players are, are, are getting, you know, games off. I mean, I remember one game that LeBron James was off last year, and they showed him walking into the arena, you know, wearing Civvy's clothes, and he had a glass of wine. I do remember that. He walks in with a glass of red wine. But that's it's so unusual for him to take a game off. Like, there's been very few unless he's been injured. Uh, and I look at So uh, this issue now, because he's now playing in Los Angeles and he's playing for an American team and because they're getting a lot of national games, uh, you're 100% right, uh, and Doris Burke is 100% right, this is now going to be an issue for the NBA because the NBA ratings when when uh, TSN or Sportsnet showed the games up here it made no difference to the ratings in the American market for advertising and everything else it made no difference when you start having stars ditch the national televised games that affect ratings that affect advertising rates and everything else now it's going to be a big deal it will yeah yeah i just and you and and i i agree with you completely the problem is, I just don't. I I don't know how the league can mandate players to play. You cannot be. You cannot receive pay for a game you don't play and are not injured. Again, how how on earth would you ever legislate that with the with the players union? It can't happen. I, I, I well, I don't know. It, you know, you can't make these lays these leagues pay for play. That'll never happen. Scott. But do you think the players' union truly? We only have a couple of minutes. Do you think the players' union really will fight against this? Because I think there's a lot of guys on teams going. Wait a second. Why is Kawhi being paid 35 million and he only has to play three quarters of the games, and I'm being paid X dollars and I'm expected reality, to be out there every day? Because, because the reality is, in the NBA, it's a 13 to 14 man roster, and the top five or top six generally get paid. I, I, oh, I agree. I agree. But if you had a vote of the members of the union, like a, a, a secret a, a secret ballot vote asking whether they want to fight this, I bet you that the membership 
is like, no, I, I'm okay with saying you can't be paid unless you're injured and you don't play a game. And again, Scott, you're probably totally correct. But the players that are going to say that have no pull. They have no voice. Because, you know, if that's like a Chris Boucher and the Raptors saying that, his voice is not heard. Of course. Anyway, I, 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 this will, this is going to become, this is going to get resolved, and I'm with you. I don't know how the what the answer is, but when when we get halfway through this year and Kawhi Leonard has missed five nationally televised games, <laughs> ESPN is going to go at their next meetings with the NBA and say, uh, guys, this is not what we signed on for back in the day when it was the Celtics and the Lakers. We didn't have Larry Bird and Magic Johnson say, guys, yeah, I'm taking the day off today. We're building, you You are right, this is a star league, and we're building all of our coverage and all of our schedule around the stars. And if the stars are stiffing us, we're not paying. We're not paying what we're paying anyway. Well, the, the quick, I know we're out of time, but the thing is, it makes me laugh about it too, Scott, is that, you know, I don't want to go be the old man that says, well, back in the day... But back in the day, was the travel the travel was much tougher. The, it, you know, the planes weren't as good, the, the hotels weren't as good. Yep. You know, the the seats on the plane weren't as good. You know what I mean? And the, certainly, the medical attention that the players got back in the day certainly wasn't as good as they got. So I, I, I like I said, I I don't know what they're going to do about it, but I do agree with you. I just find it so funny as we go. I find it so funny that the American media had apparently no concept last year nope. that Kawhi Leonard was sitting out with these load management days, but day one that he misses a game, they lose it. I mean, they're like just out of their mind that this happened. I mean, people can go online and look at this clip. ESPN talked about this longer than you and I have been talking about this. I mean, this was like bonkers that this would that this could happen, and it was as if they had never known this had happened before. Yeah. Anyway. Because it, it affects them now, and they are the mighty ESPN. You wait until they do come December 11, when they come to Toronto, and Kawhi Leonard is wearing a suit sitting on the bench. They will not be handing out foam fingers or replica championship rings at Scotiabank Arena. They'll be having pitchforks and torches in that arena well, at the Clippers' I, I, management. I really hope. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I so hope for Raptor fans that the, the Clippers don't do that. I, I really, really, really hope. Because what it'll, be, what it'll be is in the day, they won't do it just out of the blue. It'll be the day or the game before he'll suffer a slight tweak of something oh. and he'll have to sit. Oh, he's got a, he's got a sore quad. He's, he, he felt something. Like, well, we all feel something. No, no, but he felt something. He's got to sit for this one. I feel something in my knee pop every morning. I, I, yeah, I mean, I feel something emotionally every morning. I don't know. Maybe I need load management days. Thanks for doing this, Bubs. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Rob. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.